everybody. It's Adam Farkas along with Paul Farkas. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of OD Wire Radio. And today, Paul, once again, all about dry eye. Really? A subject with which you are very familiar. Oh, yeah. You know, a certain at, age. At a certain it. age. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so, um, and fortunately, we have an expert again today with us. So it's not just us talking about Paul's dry eye. Um, well, Adam, before we start, though, full disclosure, full disclosure, uh, our speaker I have known for many years but also uh, your sister and your niece and nephew are use, use uh, Dr. Barry Iden as their optometrist. Really? That you didn't know. So I guess we better be nice to him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and secondly, uh, uh, Dr. Barry Iden belongs to the Society of Eye Care Specialists. Uh, a member of my former practice belongs to the same group that gives each other advice. So we have two different things that we have. Uh, so this is going to be a, a, a completely illegitimate interview, right? Because the fix is in because we know him. So so I don't even know why we should continue, right? But uh, no. um, so yeah, we have known Barry for a long time. And, um, you know, he runs a large private practice, North, North Suburban uh, Vision Consultants uh, outside of Chicago. Um, and I'm sure that you've all heard him speak before. He's done OD wire pieces before, webinars and so forth. But today he's going to talk to us all about the Keratograph 5M and dry eye and how you can use it to build your own dry eye practice. So, Barry, with that awesome introduction, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, both of you. And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to actually be speaking today the way you guys were going. I mean, that was, that was quite a show. Listen, uh, nobody listens to me at home. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, get it out of your system here. Sounds good. Uh, could you just, uh, for our people that are unfamiliar with you and your practice, can you describe uh, your practice location and the demographics? Sure, absolutely. So as I think you mentioned just before, we practice in the Chicago suburbs, north of downtown Chicago. We have two locations. We have five ODs and two MDs affiliated with the practice. And it's sort of like a subspecialty practice. Each of us has our areas of interest, specialization, and expertise. So for me and one of our other OD associates, we tend to uh, gravitate more towards anterior segment disease, dry eye specifically, uh, irregular cornea management like keratoconus, so on and so forth. Um, whereas some of our other associates specialize in binocular vision, vision therapy, low vision. Um, our two ophthalmologists have subspecialties. One of them is uh, cataract refractive, and the other is the most recent addition to our practice is an ophthalmic plastics uh, specialist. So everybody's got their little area, and uh, we feel like we can take care of patients in a great way this way. And so, yes, yeah, so again, my personal interest is more on the anterior segment disease and specialized contact lens management aspects. Got it. And so that brings us to our friends at Oculus and the Keratograph 5M. So um, people have seen this device on ODWire. We talk about it a lot. Oculus has been with us a long time. I'm holding on to a picture of it right now. It's actually a very sort of modern looking uh, device. Um, but why don't we just talk specifics about how you actually use it in your practice? Sure. Um, well, we've had the uh, Keratograph, both the version 4 and now most recently the 5M version, over the past number of years. And just so I put things in perspective, we actually, I mentioned, have two offices. So we actually have a version 4 in one office and a 5M in our other office, in our main office. 
And also at our main office, we incorporate another technology from uh, Oculus, which is the Oculus Pentacam. So to be very frank with you, uh, although the keratograph really basically is a placido topographer, we predominantly utilize it as a dry eye diagnostic tool because we use the Pentacam predominantly for all of our corneal measurements based on some of the unique characteristics that that instrument has. So speaking specifically about the uh, Keratograph 5M and its application for ocular surface disease and dry eye, that's where it really differentiates itself. Now I need to say that as a basic topographer, it's an awesome system. And what makes the Keratograph, in my judgment, a great investment for folks, especially those who need multifunctionality, is just that and the fact that this machine does so many different things. In today's day and age, where space is a premium, the ability to have many different instruments in your practice, taking up lots of space and lots of expense, uh, is very difficult for a lot of practices. So this particular instrument and its multifunctionality is wonderful, but it really starts off as a basically excellent placido topographer with many of the features that other placido topographers have, and the keratograph does it as well, if not better. But what really differentiates it, as I said, is its multifunctionality, and especially in ocular surface disease and dry eye management. So at our practice, that's really how we use the keratograph for its dry eye diagnostic and ocular surface degree, uh, disease diagnostic capabilities. Right. So could you walk us through a little bit about the protocol that you use for dry eye and, and kind of how you work the device into that protocol? Sure. Well, I would have to say one of the most challenging things for us is the fact that since this system is so robust and has so many utilizations which we will review, what really is difficult for us is finding the time to do all of the things with patients that the instrument can do. So there are two different ways that we incorporate it. Most often we'll do an assessment with the uh, keratograph as part of perhaps a comprehensive eye exam, especially if a patient reports certain symptoms or we see certain findings under the biomicroscope, then we may get some of these uh, software findings from the keratograph that we'll review. But when we really are suspicious of a very significant case of dry eye and or ocular surface uh, problems, we'll often ask the patient to return specifically for a visit related to the diagnostics and then ultimately what the therapeutic uh, modalities that we'll incorporate would be. And that gives us more time in the schedule to allow for those tests. So basically what would happen is if a person is tested on the keratograph during their comprehensive exam, doctor may call one of our technicians in and say, run one or two of the tests. They take a few minutes to run. However, if we have them back for a more comprehensive evaluation, we will indicate uh, in the plan for when they come back a whole host of procedures to do, and those all will be done by our technicians and or our interns prior to the patient being seen by the doctor that day. Because all of our systems are networked into each of the exam rooms, so basically the doctors just look at all of the results uh, in the exam rooms. and. Because of the way the software is set up, we can manipulate those results as if we were actually at the instrument. The only thing you can't do from in the exam room is actually capture an image, take an image from an eye. Um, but in terms of once the images are captured, uh, then you can manipulate them in all the different ways that the software works. Right. You know, uh, 
do you have the situation, especially with the elderly, where they don't know what they don't know? For example, I'm, I could be categorized as an elderly, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I certainly have symptoms of dry eyes, but, you know, when you get older, if you wake up without a pain in the morning, you're probably dead. <laughs> so the older folks yeah. have so many pains that dry eyes are just one of, one of a, a host of things. Uh, so yeah. how do you manage to bring up the subject that this is an abnormality that's treatable? Right. That's really a great point uh, because basically it's almost, you know, all of us have had great experience in the contact lens field, and we all know that patients very rarely report symptoms unless we tease it out of them because they think that's the way things are with contacts. In other words, dryness at the end of the day, contact lens awareness, that sort of thing. The same holds true for dry eye independent of contacts. And I just want to mention here, we all know that contact lenses surely can exacerbate these symptoms. And many of our patients who wear contact lenses have uh, dry eye type symptoms, but a lot of them truly have basic dry eye and or ocular surface uh, anomalies even before we put them in context. So I just want to mention here, I think it's a really a great point in time to say that, that during your assessment for any contact lens patient, you must evaluate the ocular surface and the tear, uh, and the tear chemistry, so to speak, um, prior to fitting context and try to address any problems that you'll find. And the utilization of the keratograph in that way is an excellent way to uh, get a baseline for patients. So I think symptomatology, you have to ask the right questions. Uh, so patients may think, as you said, especially as people get older, their eyes become drier. One of the things that we like to do is ask specific questions. Are they getting any of those symptoms of grittiness, sandiness, unusual redness? But one of the symptoms that doctors very often fail to realize are associated with ocular surface problems is the visual impact of these problems. We always talk about comfort and redness and irritation, but dry eye and ocular surface problems often can impact negatively our visual responses. And those kinds of responses would be, for example, fluctuations in vision. And when patients tell you that once they blink a few times, things clear up, that's a real key factor to understand that it's probably something to do with the tear film or ocular surface. So understanding those implications, I think, are very important. Right. I've got a question here. I'm actually looking at the keratograph's um, output on the screen right now. I've got a, a million pictures up here. Um, you know, you, yeah. are, you already said that you don't actually run the test yourself. Your your assistants can do it, and then just, they transmit the data to you. Do you actually do you actually use some of this output when you're educating the patient on dry eye? And and if you do, how do you how do you do it? How do you you know show them the data? The graphics. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a critical point. So this is a great opportunity for us to sort of segue into what the instrument can do, and I can answer that question with specifics as it relates to the suite of software that's available. So one of the most frequently used software uh, aspects in this system that we use is something that's called non-invasive tear breakup time. And basically what the system will do is it will reflect the placido rings onto the cornea, it will take a video over time of those placido rings. And just like when you were doing traditional breakup time with fluorescein, except here you don't put anything into the eye, basically you'll have the patient keep their eye open as long as they can. And what the instrument will do is it will detect distortions that develop in those edges of the placido rings. And those distortions 
are indicate and will indicate that those areas of the tear film are being disrupted or breaking up, so to speak. And what's so cool about this instrument, it can measure the time of breakup down to a tenth of a second at variety of points throughout the cornea. And it will give you virtually a printout of those points and it color codes them so you can kind of get an idea of how that looks. And you can put your cursor over any point and, and it will tell you that time that that point broke up uh, down, as I said, to a tenth of a, of a uh, second. So some of the key factors that we look at would be the uh, time to first breakup point, more importantly, the average breakup time of all the points that actually were disrupted. And then I also look at the area or the, uh, the area of cornea that has broken up on that uh, particular graph, as well as how fast that it occurs. So to speak, you get a um, kind of a graph where you will see a slope of the breakup over time. So steep slopes, for example, are indicative of fast breakup time as well. So we look at a variety of factors. Now, as you said, we have that in the exam room. So we pull that up and we can look at the map that's printed out about the breakup time. And that's fairly uh, evident to the patient. But what's even cooler from an educational standpoint is you can run the video. And with their software, the areas as they break up start showing on the video as little red um, areas. And so you can show the patient, here's the surface of your eye. When you see these red areas, that's where your tear film is evaporating. And they see that happen, you know, within three to four seconds. And they see the area that it's all becoming broken up. And they realize those are the areas where the tear film is evaporating and drying out. It's very evident to the patients. It's a really powerful educational tool. So that's, that's one that we use an awful lot. Another one that we use that is very simple in terms of performance as well as patient understanding is the inferior tear meniscus height. So what happens there is that we take an image through the system that creates a little reflection of the inferior tear lake or the inferior tear prism. And when you get this still image, you can use computer-generated calipers in the system, which we do in the exam room, to actually measure the tear meniscus height inferiorly. And typically, the standard that we do is right below the pupil, but you can measure it across that surface. And usually, normative values are anything over about you know, two, uh, two millimeters. So um, this, again, is very evident for patients. You could say, look at this. Normal is this, and look at how thin and how low your tear meniscus is, which tells us about the tear volume. So whereas uh, non-invasive tear film breakup time would tell you about tear film stability, this tells you a bit more of the volume of tears. And we try to explain that in terms of the differential between evaporative dry eye and aqueous deficient dry eye. So um, that is really easy to do and very powerful for the uh, patients from an educational standpoint. And the third most common software we use, and one that we're using more and more and I think is dramatically important because we now know how important meibomian gland disease is to dry eye, that is the meibography uh, aspect where through infrared imaging, you can actually do imaging of the meibomian glands. And these images come out very, very uh, clearly 
and you can see areas where there's uh, atrophy of the glands or dropout of the glands. You can see earlier on in the disease where the glands, especially at their ducts, will dilate. And so these are really indicators of meibomian gland disease, which we know is a primary cause of uh, dry eye symptoms in patients today. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, once again, it's very educational because we go over those images, we show them what normal looks like in the exam room, and we show them their images. And it's, uh, it's again, highly educational and really drives the point home. Huh. You know, it's interesting. We had Jack Schaefer on a couple weeks ago. Uh, he did a little webinar with us about ocular surface wellness, this idea that you can catch these problems early or even before they happen. Um, when you see patients in, can you actually use the keratograph to track these changes over time? Is it reproducible enough that you can bring the patient back and show them if they're making progress, either for good or bad? Yes. Well, some of the software is very useful for that, especially non-invasive tear breakup time and the tear meniscus height. So when you're managing these patients, you're getting much more stable tear film, whether it's uh, medical management or otherwise, uh, you can show them changes. For example, just utilization of therapeutic uh, drops or, for example, tear stabilizing sprays can show almost immediate improvement in tear film stability by showing longer areas of tear film uh, stability on the surface with the non-invasive tear breakup time. When it comes to mybography, that's where things get a little tricky because once you start getting gland atrophy, it is not possible typically for those glands to regenerate themselves. I've not been able to document that even with therapy. So what you want to do is if you have a patient that you see under the slit lamp has evidence of some form of meibomian gland dysfunction and you do mybography, what you're hoping is that you don't see atrophy of the uh, meibomian glands because that will tell you that with therapy, we're much more likely to get better results. If they already have significant gland atrophy, it's a much tougher case because it's a much more advanced case. Right. You know, to, to be 100% clear, everything that you've described up to now can be done with the Keratograph 5M? Absolutely. There isn't a test that I just talked about that isn't in the system, and there actually are a few others. Um, for, and we don't use them quite as much. I'll explain those very quickly to you. Uh, for example, you could look at the tear film lipid layer and get an idea of the thickness of the lipid layer. And again, a thinner lipid layer is going to be associated with a less stable, more evaporative dry eye situation, less stable tear film. And what happens there is that, again, you're shining or reflecting the the uh, placido rings onto the surface of the cornea, and you're looking at the coloration of the tear film over those rings, what we call the bifringence pattern. And the more kind of oily colors, if one could think of, you know, an oil slick on, on a surface, how you get that kind of coloration when light shines into it, that would indicate that there's more oil in the tear film. If you get more of a, you know, bland white uh, look to those rings, then you know that the lipid layer is thin. Now, keep in mind that this is not quantitative at this point. This is just a qualitative assessment. There are other instruments on the marketplace, albeit them much, much, much more expensive, that can actually quantify the thickness of the lipid layer. For example, like the LipiView from Tear Science is extremely accurate to measure the thickness of the lipid layer. But again, that system is significantly more expensive. And um, so probably one that the average practice may not have. So, so a practice management question. 
if mm-hmm. someone is ready to open up, and uh, would, would you recommend number one that someone that's a novice at this uh, become a, a dry eye uh, referral place, uh, a center for dry eyes? And what's the one if they have one investment that they have to make? Is there one instrument uh, to call yourself a, a dry eye expert that you would recommend? Well. To be honest with you, I'm going to answer that, and of course, like everything you're asking me, in the most truthful way that I can. You know, most of us out there in practice are going to manage our own patient base, and there's plenty of patients with dryness of their eyes or true dry eye, meibomian gland dysfunction. Once one becomes educated enough to know how to diagnose this, you'll see it's everywhere, and you can make impact on so many people. And just as probably Jack mentioned in his uh, webinar a few weeks ago that if you're looking at much earlier phases, you'll probably be able to help people prevent serious problems from occurring. So the idea of setting up a true dry eye center and making it a referral center, albeit a great idea, is probably something that the average practice is not going to do, let's just be honest. There might be some, a few, a small percentage who are going to embrace management of ocular surface, really lift their level of expertise to a very high degree and try to make this happen. And some have done that already. But I think for the average practitioner out there, just managing your own patient base, there's plenty of dry eye in there to keep you busy. And if I did have to start from the beginning and just say, listen, I can only this year buy one instrument and I want to figure out what would give me the greatest bang for the buck, I think this instrument probably would be that number one. And for the reasons that I mentioned before, first, I've got a darn good placebo-based topographer with wonderful software so I can manage my contact lens patients, I can screen for keratoconus, so on and so forth. I have this amazing dry eye suite, as I've described, that I can do a lot of diagnostics from for ocular surface. And there are many other aspects to the software that make it multifunctional. So I like the concept of multifunctionality in instruments today, again, based on space requirements, based on overall cost. So you do get a big bang for the buck, I think, with this one. I've got a philosophical question for you. Um, So feel free to answer or not. If we know that meibomian glands, when they atrophy, they're gone for good, would Mm -hmm. you say that in the future it's going to be the standard of care that you have to evaluate them for all of your patients going forward? That's a great, great question. I'm really honest with you because I've had this discussion with a number of folks. Um, There actually is a a summit coming up in a couple of weeks in Dallas where about 50 of us are getting together uh, to talk about what the standards of care need to be. And we can get very fancy with all kinds of diagnostic equipment, with different types of testing. But to be very frank with you, the most powerful tool we have is our slit lamp. And I think evaluating the meibomian gland simply by observing and by doing some form of manual expression, diagnostic expression, will go a far long way. Now, once you do that, you can then utilize technology like the keratograph to get very specific, to help in education, to help in diagnosis, and then come up with your treatment plans. But once again, start with the basics, excellent slit lamp exam, and part of the routine slit lamp exam really needs to be the evaluation of the lid margins for meibomian gland dysfunction. And not all patients are symptomatic, 
And not all forms of meibomian gland dysfunction have obvious capping of the glands and inflammation. So by doing a diagnostic uh, gland expression, even with your fingers, um, you're going to find out that so many people have this condition. Huh. Another thing gone for me. Yeah, you got none left. <laughs> no, no meibomian glands. No meibomian glands. I mean, You're all dried up there, I mean, it's, it's been years since I felt that that's easy. I thought, well, well, forget it. I, I don't want to You're complain. You're setting parts You're much wiser. <laughs> You're much wiser than you used to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> All right, well, Barry, it's been great having you here today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the audience before we go? Yeah, I mean, it's out there. Just go out and get it, and uh, good luck to everybody. All right, well, thanks so much for being here, and thanks, everyone, for listening, and I guess we'll see everyone online. See you soon.